0: You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos.
1: It's November 29th, 2023, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, the GRU's sandworm is implicated in a campaign against Danish electrical power providers. Paris wastewater agency has been hit by a cyber attack. A Pennsylvania water utility draws the attention of Iranian hackers. LockBit hits Boeing. Bleckley Declaration represents a consensus starting point for AI governance. And the U.S. Executive Order on Artificial Intelligence is out. We welcome guest Austin Reed back to the show. He's a senior consultant at ABS Group. Austin and I discuss ship and shore challenges for security and the current and emerging regulatory landscape. The Learning Lab has part one of three of the discussion between Dragos's Mark Urban talking about building automation systems with Daniel Gaeta and Zach Spencer. Sector CERT, Denmark's Cybersecurity Center for the Critical Sectors, issued a report describing what it characterized as the largest cyber attack on record against that country's critical infrastructure. In May of this year, an APT group, which Sector Cert associates with Sandworm, simultaneously hit 22 companies in Denmark's highly decentralized electrical power sector. The attack, which began on May 11th and continued into the last week of that month, exploited a critical command injection flaw affecting Zizel firewalls. That vulnerability had been disclosed and addressed in late April, but the attackers were able to find enough unpatched systems to gain access. The attack was ultimately detected and stopped without disruption to power distribution, but it seems to have been aimed at gaining comprehensive access to Denmark's grid. The attacks proper were preceded by a reconnaissance phase that began in January. A simultaneous attack against so many targets suggests both careful planning and determined execution. Sector CERT properly notes the difficulties of attribution, and stop short of saying the incident was the work of Russia's GRU, but on form it certainly looks like a sandworm operation. Similar attacks have been mounted against Ukraine's power grid, and the incident in Denmark strongly suggests that infrastructure in what Moscow tends to call the Collective West can be expected to figure in Russian target lists. As far as Ukraine power is concerned, GPS signals have been a common target of Russian jamming, This is most commonly thought of in terms of interfering with positioning, but GPS signals are also a source of precision timing. Disruption of timing can interfere fatally with elements of the power grid, and so they're expected to figure prominently on Russian electronic attack targets this winter. CNN reports that Cisco has developed and delivered switches that give Uranergo Ukraine's power authority, redundant timing to compensate for any GPS interference. The switches placed in electrical power substations ensure those substations' connectivity with the utilities' networks, even in the absence of GPS. Paris's wastewater management agency was hit by a cyberattack on November seventeenth, the record reports. The agency said in a statement, the action of the specialized SIAAP teams has mainly focused on the objective of maximum security of industrial IT to ensure the management of network and factory activity. In parallel with this action, priority was also given to the neutralization of all external IT and digital connection vectors of the SIAAP in order to prevent, as much as possible, the propagation to and from the outside of the attack spotted at the end of the week. Another attack against a water system, this one handling drinking water as opposed to wastewater, occurred over the weekend in Pennsylvania. The Municipal Water Authority of Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, confirmed Saturday that the Iranian hacktivist group, the Cyber Avengers, had taken control of one of the local water utility's booster stations. The attack affected a station that monitors and regulates pressure for raccoon and potter townships. KDKA reported that the attack immediately tripped an alarm and that neither the safety nor the availability of the township's water were affected. The attackers displayed a message on the station's monitors expressing their political purpose, stating, You have been hacked down with Israel. Every equipment made in Israel is Cyber Avengers' legal target. The utility uses a control system provided by Unitronics, an Israeli company. The Beaver Countyian reports that operators responded to the alarm by reverting to manual control. The Cyber Avengers have claimed attacks on utilities before, but those utilities have been in Israel. In October, they claimed to have attacked closed-circuit television systems at the national water company, Mekarot. That month, they also claimed falsely to have compromised the Dorad power station, also in Israel, the Pennsylvania attack indicates an expansion of the group's activities. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security was immediately alerted to the Aliquippa incident and is investigating. Boeing's parts and distribution subsidiaries sustained a lockbit ransomware attack earlier this month, CyberScoop reports. The threat actors have leaked 43 gigabytes of data stolen from the company. The attackers gained access via the Citrix bleed vulnerability affecting Netscaler ADC and Netscaler Gateway. Boeing shared extensive technical information about the attack with the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which the agency used to produce a joint cybersecurity advisory on Lockbit's exploitation of Citrix bleed. In a media briefing last Tuesday, CISA Executive Assistant Director Eric Goldstein said, Boeing's cooperation was an extraordinary example of private sector collaboration with government partners. Earlier this month, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak hosted an AI safety summit, convening about 100 government leaders, tech executives, and scholars. The summit is British-led, but with broad international participation – The BBC explains that Prime Minister Sunak's plan is to make the UK a global leader in AI safety, but the summit reached consensus on a draft agreement, the Bletchley Declaration. That agreement outlined two general directions for further work. First, identifying AI safety risks of shared concern, building a shared scientific and evidence based understanding of these risks, and sustaining that understanding as capabilities continue to increase in the context of a wider global approach to understanding the impact of AI in our societies. Second, building respective risk-based policies across our countries to ensure safety in light of such risks, collaborating as appropriate while recognizing our approaches may differ based on national circumstances and applicable legal frameworks. This includes, alongside increased transparency by private actors developing frontier AI capabilities, appropriate evaluation metrics, tools for safety testing, and developing relevant public sector capability and scientific research. The signatories represent the world's major cyber powers, with the exception of Russia, Iran, and North Korea. U.S. President Biden has issued an executive order on artificial intelligence, initially available to the public in the form of a White House fact sheet The EO establishes new standards for AI safety and security, protects Americans' privacy, advances equity and civil rights, stands up for consumers and workers, promotes innovation and competition, advances American leadership around the world, and more. The closing and more is seriously intended. The EO is complex and far-ranging, touching on both the risks and opportunities the family of emerging technologies presents. Many of the provisions of the EO have little to do directly with cybersecurity proper, but those that do include new standards for AI safety and security, protecting Americans' privacy, and ensuring responsible and effective government use of AI. Other sections of the EO focus on ensuring competition, preserving and creating jobs, and avoiding certain civil rights risks, particularly in employment and housing, and supporting AI research and development. And it's my pleasure to welcome back to the show, Austin Reed, Senior Consultant at ABS Group. We continue our conversation about ship-to-shore challenges and other security issues in the maritime sector. You know, at the risk of, uh, of uh, stretching a metaphor and having it collapse under its own weight, I, I think about... Um, You know, historically, we've heard stories about ships coming into, you know, the Great Lakes or or the Chesapeake Bay and, you know, dumping their bilge water and out with that comes some critters who are from the other side of the globe and suddenly they find themselves in a very easy place to survive and they take off and, you know, suddenly the Great Lakes are dealing with some sort of snail or clam or something that's invasive. Can we extend that metaphor to you know, ships coming into ports and, and the danger of them injecting some malware into the port itself? Does does that uh, line of thinking track?
2: I, I at a high level, yes. I do. I, do, I, I think that does track. That's you know, I, I I like the you know invasive species you know tie there. That's that's very interesting, and I think at the the operations level you know there there are those interactions between you know the data transfers whether it's you know EDIs and and manifest between the vessel and the port facilities uh, you know if it isn't necessarily you know uh, an individual walking up you know a longshoreman walking up and plugging a giant cable into the side of the boat you know that's not necessarily the worry there but there's still that transfer of data whether it's emails going between uh, the, you know the customs broker or the the port agent or the pilots um, back and forth between the vessels and then there is that pathway there so that's I think that is possible, and that's that's a really unique uh, unique approach to that.
1: Yeah, where do we find ourselves when it comes to the regulatory landscape?
2: So, great question. So, the regulatory landscape right now is what I would say is is kind of in a catch up phase comparative to other critical infrastructure sectors. Uh, there's new emerging regulation from IACS, uh, so that's the classification uh, society glo- governing body um, that is mirrored around uh, IEC six. 6- 2443, uh, that will be coming into effect later this year, uh, pardon, in middle of 2024. Uh, so, that's mm. going to be a driver for for new vessels that come down uh, in the, you know, in the coming years that they have to meet those standards uh, and, and, you know, have a secure baseline to, you know, essentially be prepared for these cyber threats. And it's, it's a testament, you know, in my eyes, I see it as it's a, it's a great step forward from where Regulations in the sector were a few years ago. Uh, so IMO, the International Maritime Organization, uh, that's you know a UN organization, uh, came out in 2021, I believe, if not 2020, with a a directive that they have to you know vessel and vessel operators have to follow you know basic cybersecurity guidelines. And it, you know initially it was those guidelines were in in my eyes. We're not enough, uh, but it's great to see that you know with IAX coming into, into play here soon. I think it's it's going to only you know push vessel owners and vessel operators uh, further to uh, you know really really take ownership and securing their systems.
1: As we look around the world, are are there haves and have nots? You know, are there folks for whom uh, getting up to speed with these things are going to be more of a practical challenge?
2: Yeah, that's there. There definitely are, and I think a lot of that comes down to you know just like you probably see in other sectors is, is resourcing, and uh, you know just the ability to take you know the vulnerabilities and the potential architecture challenges seriously. So if if you're an organization that has you know the capital to invest in you know modernization, you're going to do it if it means that you can uh, you know spend money to make money type things. So it's when I look at challenges to securing the MTS, you know, across the haves and have-nots, I, I think it comes down to presenting what investments you would need to make or want to make. If you approach this as a, we just need to spend money on security, um, the have-nots are are going to really suffer. But if you can, uh, you know, approach your modernization and do secure modernization, you will go leaps and bounds, you, you, you know, you'll be able to stay competitive uh, and you, but you'll also be able to stay competitive while maintaining secure ecosystems or a secure, you know, MTS, uh, you know, ecosystem within your, your environment. And those, that's going to be just a, you know, kind of a more of a business decision as well, not just necessarily a security, uh, you know, compliance decision. And if we can get beyond focusing on, you know, from the maritime side of, you know, we just want to do the bare minimum for securing the infrastructure to stay compliant. Uh, you know, we can, we can, you know, you can really do some great things to uh, spend money to make money for your clients and make money for yourself in a, in a secure way. If that, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Who has the ability to move the needle here? In other words, could you know, can a port say, if you want to bring your ship here, you have to meet these standards?
2: Yeah, so the I think it's the efforts you know by IAX and, and the classification societies to set the base standards for hey, this is the bare minimum that you need to do to, you know, to receive a class, um, you know, check from, or for your vessel to safely sail. And, and in that case, I think if the P&I clubs or the insurance brokers come in and you know and set the additional requirements, you know that that's going to be great too. Um, but you know it's it's also you have to set effective. Uh, regulation and effective controls, uh, because if you you know don't you know the the threat actors are going to move faster than regulation. So in in my eyes, the industry has a lot of catching up to do. We're we're making good strides, um, but where the challenge is going to be is like you said is is trying to figure out who actually does have that ability to set, you know, yes, you need to do this and this and that. Because right now there's been a lot of organizations or, you know, governing bodies that don't necessarily want to do that. Uh, So until we, unfortunately, as I mentioned before, uh, there's, you know, it's a very reactionary industry. So (laughs) until, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, something happens um, that really gets the, you know, the sector to, um, you know, take the threat seriously, um, I think it's going to have to, you know, it's going to be some time before that happens.
1: As you and your colleagues play these things out, you know the, the possible scenarios. What are what are some of the the things that you think could get people's attention that could capture you know the imagination of the general public?
2: Certainly, yeah. So there's uh, if you look back two years ago, twenty twenty one. I think it was March. Uh, the Ever Given situation, which where it was a uh, container ship transiting uh, the Suez Canal, uh, had a propulsion propulsion or steering malfunction and issue during some adverse weather uh, that caused the uh, the vessel to run aground and blocked transit in Suez for you know ten to fifteen days. I can't recall, but um, you know, at the time, there there were a lot of folks that were like, "Oh, was this you know was this a cyber event?" Clearly, was not a cyber event. But if you take that same type of you know Challenge that same type of event where you're you have a vessel that's transiting a you know close quarters waterway you know highly highly congested uh, in a you know weather or a challenging weather environment um, if you start having some some stacking or cascading effects whether it's a timed attack on the bridge systems or some sort of RF based attack on navigation systems uh, you you know you could really see a a situation where that same type of outcome where a vessel had a casualty aboard, you know, a system casualty that caused that grounding, you could recreate that uh, using cyber effects, you know, if you just were trying to uh, stack these, have these cascading or stacking uh, effects if it, multiple things were happening. Because vessel operators, are, you know, the mariners themselves, they're tracking dozens of things on the bridge, you know, they're, they're looking at the current position, they're trying to keep tabs on the radar, they're looking at AIS or automated identification system, which is like the beacons for, uh, you know, ships to maintain awareness with each other. It's, you know, they're, they're not going to be thinking about, you know, oh, is this a cyber attack? You know, they're just going to mm-hmm. be trying to safely operate their vessels. Like when you're, when you're driving your car down the freeway, you're not necessarily thinking about, you know, hey, how could so-and-so, try to hack my car, you know, you're, you're focused on just safe operations and, you know, they're doing the same thing just at a much you know higher level. So, um, there's, you know, there are quite a few different things and there's been some great folks in, in, you know, at other organizations that have, uh, presented on similar things. Um, Dr. Gary Kessler, he was at the Atlanta Council. He, uh, he's done some, some presenting and some work on, uh, you know, these types of scenarios, whether it's threats to the AIS. Uh, and I've, I myself have done some, some research into you know AIS spoofing and AIS vulnerabilities as well. So it's it's um, my concern is on the navigation systems uh, because that is where the mariners interact with you know I guess the most. Uh, well, it's it's the I, I see that as the weak point. So with with navigation mm. systems because that's where you have the most external. You know interface, whether it's formally over you know systems or just folks coming up onto the bridge uh, as far as pilots go. so that's that's where my focus personal focus would be is to ensure yeah. that you've got you know good processes in place
1: and we've seen some cases here with uh, folks, I guess maybe dabbling with uh, monkeying with GPS signals as you're saying, you know sort of rf attacks on on vessels of throwing them off course, you know, nation states for variety of their own self-interest. I mean, it's, it's sort of a demonstrated attack.
2: Yes. Yeah. So that's a, that's going to be a challenge is, is, is trying to, you know, we've got these systems and protocols that are inherently, you know, they're legacy systems and legacy protocols that have been around for, you know, 20 to 30, if not 40 years. And looking at, you know, Emerging technology, whether it's software-defined radio or just the the barrier to entry to challenge um, those protocols and those you know those systems is is getting lower and lower. You know, to to plug my own work uh, over the summer, uh, presentation that I gave at ICS Village uh, DEF DEFCON this year was was related to some you know work on uh, AIS spoofing, and, you know, generating mass AIS contacts. So, like, if myself a you know independent researcher in my, you know, what I'll call my garage with, you know, basic free time is able to cause adverse effects on these protocols. You know, that just tells you that as the nation state actors have demonstrated their ability to degrade PNT, GNSS, and AIS is is very, you know, it's very real. And, you know, I, I can't say that, you know, regulatory folks are taking that seriously. Uh, so it's just more of what, what needs to be happened. Next is that, you know, we need to make sure that the mariners themselves and, you know, the operators of these vessels and these port systems are aware of the the realities of those threats. That's what I, you know, hope to see in that, the coming months and years.
1: Yeah. What's your advice for that person out there who thinks that they may be interested in MTS? You know, someone who they have the, the technical acumen, you know, perhaps we're sort of thinking about cybersecurity, but also... Uh, not to sound uh, corny, but they they feel the call to the sea. You know, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> any uh, wor- tips or words of wisdom there?
2: That's that's a good one. Yeah. So the I you know I started kind of the reverse of that. Is I I, I felt the call to you know I've always been a techie, but I, I started with the, the call to sea you know first, and I was doing you know maritime operations, and then realized you know physical and you know physical security and and you know cybersecurity were vulnerable in the space. I was like, I want to do more. But if, if you're coming from the tech side and you, you want to, uh, you know, transition into, you know, try to, to work on the maritime side, I would just try, reach out to your, you know, local maritime organizations, whether that's a, you know, coast guard sector or try to get, you know, some sort of tour of a port facility. You know, if you're on the coast, it's going to be, of course, a lot easier, but, you know, also if you're inland, you know, inland waterways for the U S are, are massive. That's, you know, the, the canals and and um, rivers that you know help carry grain and you know ag products down into the gulf and elsewhere so if if you're anywhere near a vicinity just reach out to a port facility and say hey i'm interested in this sector and i'm a tech guy uh you know you're you're a tech folk you know i'm you'll i guarantee you'll have a port operator or somebody in that terminal that's like oh you you like cyber great (laughs) Uh, because they're they're you know they're looking for help. You know there's there's always a port facility or a, you know a terminal that that could use some some of your cyber domain experience.
1: That's Austin Reed, senior consultant at ABS Group. Today's Learning Lab, Dragos' Mark Urban talks about building automation systems with Daniel Gaeta and Zach Spencer.
3: Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Learning Lab. And today we're going to talk about building automation systems. You know, if you look at conversations in operational technology, it's typically we're thinking about electrical grids, oil and gas pipelines, uh, manufacturing floors, transportation, and logistics. And you don't always think about buildings that you know that rely on technology in order to operate. And so I'm joined uh, by specialists in the area, uh, Daniel Gaeta and Zach Spencer uh, here at Dragos, a solution architect and a strategic sales executive here at Dragos that focus on building automation. So I thought it'd be an interesting discussion. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, how's it going? Good. Let's start with a little bit of background and and maybe Dan, start with you to just give us a little flavor about kind of your background and exposure to the building automation area. Yeah, absolutely. Hello, everyone. My name is Daniel Gaeta, and I'm a senior solutions architect here at Gregos.
0: Background wise, I'm a recovering mechanical engineer, so I took the OT path to ICSOT cybersecurity and have been specializing in the space for over a decade now. I've previously worked with Northrop Grumman at the Missile Defense Agency in various roles, and then with Jacobs Engineering, uh, designing cybersecurity solutions for military installations across the globe.
3: Zach, how about yourself?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, my name is Zach Spencer. I'm a uh, account executive here at Dragos. And my experience so far has been pretty well dedicated to the uh, building automation and smart buildings industry. I've worked in the past for uh, large first-party vendors for building automation systems, including Carrier, Siemens, and Honeywell. And by education, I'm a chemical engineer and sort of took my you know track into automation controls from the chemical engineering side of things. And uh, as it's a big part of the, the chemical engineering uh, profession, and just kind of found some passion within the building automation and control space. And now looking to make sure it all gets done securely now that we're starting to integrate these systems uh, more into the rest of the uh, systems in the building and on our networks.
3: Yeah, we were just before we hopped on, I, I had to say, hey, hey, Siri, turn off my uh, office heater, uh, which Siri obediently did so. Did you mean heater? Let's see. <laughs> yes, I did Siri, and there we go with building automation. Part of the problem with building automation is sometimes it relies on Siri, but uh, that's in the home, uh, you know, perspective. But I think it gives us a sense to like, oh, you know, certain things from the outside world can interact with my home. Is that true? With you know, if, is that my data center? If I were an enterprise, is that you know, so? Maybe you can, you, you guys, could start us out. What is building automation? kind of more on the commercial and enterprise side versus, you know, by my simple setup here.
4: Yeah, sure. And I think that, you know, to your point, the home automation sphere is sort of a great uh, microcosm or a small example of how building automation systems work on the in the commercial space and sort of, uh, you know, I guess in a small way. Um, traditionally, building automation systems were designed as uh, HVAC control systems, and they were um, not designed with security in mind, really. You know, back when Backnet was being designed as a protocol, which is a probably the main uh, large open source protocol within building automation systems. Back when Backnet was being designed, it was not designed, uh, you know, with the idea that it would be connected to uh, IT networks over Ethernet at any point, or that it would be uh, at any point connected to any other systems in the building. Typically, just isolated and used in its own right for um, Control of HVAC devices is how it was originally designed, and now bu- building automation, as technology's improved and the uh, capabilities and use cases that were that commercial building owners are looking to utilize in uh, the commercial building space have grown. The need to connect those building automation systems to other systems in the building, like fire and life safety, uh, lighting, elevator controls, physical access control with like card readers and things like that, or CCTV, for example. Are, are all sort of uh, allowing for uh, great technological leaps in terms of how we can continue to control and, and monitor our commercial buildings, but also really increasing the attack surface and providing opportunities for threat actors to conduct operations against these types of buildings and their networks.
3: That's good insights. So you're, you're talking about Backnet, which is a specialist protocol that focuses on this area, and that's you know, endemic of, of operational technology is you know, either... System or vendor specific or system vendor specific protocols that, you know, uh, perform controls and, and manifest in kind of the physical world. Uh, so that's, that's, that's interesting. And, and now I understand the tying a little bit better to, to operational technology. As I started looking at the space, I remember being there seemed to be a lot of terms that kind of reference, you know, we call it building automation. What are some of the other terms that you run into that are related to
4: this space? Yeah, so building automation systems is kind of the big moniker that has been sort of decreed as the, the big one uh, that there's, you know, vendors and uh, owners are utilizing to kind of encompass these systems now that they're sort of doing more than their original uh, HVAC control system counterparts back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But uh, you'll also hear uh, building management systems was sort of the main moniker prior to this or BMS. Uh, buildings in the U.S. government federal space will refer to them as FRCS, Facility Related Control Systems, which also is just sort of more literally delineates what they're really doing in those areas. And um, you'll also hear uh, a ton of acronyms related to all of the systems that are being interconnected. I mentioned some of them, you know, access control and things like that, but you'll also have EMS for Energy Management Systems. You'll have uh, FLS for Fire and Life Safety Systems. You know, all, all of those sort of monikers will. You know are our, our systems that are being integrated into these building automation systems, and it's meant to sort of provide us with a term that encompasses all of them, but uh is it also specifically referring to that that center system that allows for that that integration
3: b a s building automation b m s building management system f r c s facility facility related control systems And then those are the umbrella terms that wrap up a bunch of that subsystems like fire and HVAC and other things. Okay. That's interesting. Now, now we talked about, you talked a little bit about protocols and uh, how they operate in, you know, in, in the both in controlling a facility as well as uh, sometimes connected to the outside world. What are some of what, you know, what can happen with that? So if we turn our attention to kind of threat scenarios, you know, what, can happen with, you know, kind of those situations that cause us to look at this for, you know, OT protection.
0: And uh, maybe this is a good chance for me to chime in, Zach and Mark and Daniel here again. And uh, in terms of answering that question, I'd say that uh, most of the common uh, historical exploits in the building automation space utilize building automation systems as entry points to the corporate network or IT network there to ultimately gain access to financial systems. Um, But back to the protocols and why that matters is, well, these building automation systems interconnect throughout the entire facility. And the protocols that are most commonly in place, oftentimes being BATnet and and Modbus and and, and others there that manage all those those automation systems, um, those have known vulnerabilities for exploit. And and so there could be, if you're not monitoring your facilities, network traffic and ICSOT systems, there could be a a malicious outsider that's compromising or or taking some sort of an adversarial approach to using and exploiting the vulnerabilities in that protocol to deny uh, service to, say, chillers or, or heating mechanisms and boilers, things of that nature. So uh, that's, that's one method, is, is, is one of the kind of threat surfaces to, to penetrate building automation systems. Um, but there's always kind of uh, concerns around secure remote access as well. Are those third-party vendors accessing the systems um, remotely in a secure way, according to the kind of service-level agreement that's expected during approved times? Um, and then, kind of the the word that no one likes to say, ransomware. I mean, that's that's certainly a, a potential. Uh, threat scenario in the space where uh, ultimately systems are ransomed by being taken offline and uh, they won't be turned back on unless the ransom is paid. Th- I guess the final, I think, important use case to mention is also use of building automation systems for exfiltrating data uh, from the facility, because these facilities oftentimes house really sensitive um, types of data stores and, and intellectual property to companies. And um, in, in many historical examples, uh, just removing that data through that building automation systems network was an easy way for for uh, those to exploit the system.
3: We'll have some episodes coming up uh, talking about the cybersecurity journey, but you can start like, hey, where am I? If, if you have mission-critical building automation systems, data centers, things like that, you know, a good place to to start is get some experts in to do an assessment. And I'll do a shameless plug here for the Dragos OT cybersecurity assessment as as an example of that. And we have specialists in the building control and data center uh, areas. Uh, but that's because this is a complex area. Uh, you know, you just mentioned ten. You know, Daniel had five things. You just mentioned ten things, and navigating through that all can be a little bit daunting. So. Uh, yeah, that's why we're here at Dragos uh, to give you some information. And if you need some help with that, uh just give us a call. So, Mark Urban with uh, Daniel Gaeta and Zach Spencer. Uh, thank you, gentlemen.
1: And that's Control Loop brought to you by the Cyberwire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com. Sound design for the show is done by Elliot Peltzman with mixing by Trey Hester. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our Drago's producers are Joanne Rosh, Mark Urban, and Montserrat Thomason. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next time.